0: experienced sub-zero temperatures? I don't think so. I don't think I've gotten that cold before, no. Well, this February just might be your first experience because after all, we're going to Harvard in February. Yes,
1: I'm so excited for that
0: trip. It's gonna be great. What is not to love about Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts in February? It's
1: just something about putting debating together and the cold weather together. I love the cold weather. And then just being on an awesome college campus just all fits so nicely.
0: Uh, Dr. Aldi, do you enjoy the winter weather in in your neck of the woods?
1: I enjoy the beginning of the
2: winter. The fact that the winter lasts so long it starts to wear on you. But But it's all about the layering. So long as you layer, you'll be fine.
0: Oh, there we go. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. I'm joined on today's episode by my co-host, Ethan Delves, and by Dr. Joseph Aldi. Uh, Dr. Aldi is a professor of the practice of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, He is also a university fellow at Resources for the Future, a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also the faculty chair for the Regulatory Policy Program at the Masavar Romani Center for Business and Government. His research focuses on climate change policy, energy policy, and regulatory policy. He holds a Ph.D. in economics from Harvard University a master's in environmental management degree from the Nicholas School of the Environment, and a BA from our neck of the woods down here at Duke University. Dr. Aldi, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a
2: real pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I I know you were uh, telling me over email that uh, uh, you're a former debater.
2: In my youth, yes. I I debated uh, uh, from 7th through 12th grade. Uh, doing a mix of, of Lincoln-Douglas. I did LD four years and two years of what we used to call a cross-sex policy debate, two-person debate.
0: Of beginning in seventh grade. What what on yes. earth convinced you to jump into this bizarre, really difficult activity as a seventh grader?
2: Uh, it, it probably began with my, my mom, who was my first debate coach. Uh, nice. So wrote, uh, she thought it would be something, you know, to, to keep me off the streets and out of trouble. And I... Uh, I just loved. Uh, I loved the the experience. I loved working with a team on uh, on the different resolutions and uh, something that was really one of the highlights throughout middle school and high school.
0: Wow, that's uh, Ethan. You were in seventh grade when you got into this. Is that I right? Was, yeah, I was just about to say I also started in seventh grade. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Now, uh, so Dr. Aldi was debate a positive experience for you?
2: Yes, I, I think it's. Uh, it, it uh, creates an opportunity to both broaden how you think about questions, uh, but also gives you this kind of opportunity that, to be honest, I didn't find much in the classroom of how do you think about communicating in a persuasive manner, what you're learning, how you synthesize across different kinds of ideas and different kinds of evidence. Uh, and so it, it, it's something which, when I look back at why I wound up uh, on the path of my studies and then with my career, that clearly the foundation was laid when I did debate.
0: Really, that is that's absolutely fascinating. I that's love so hearing those kind of stories when people look back at debate, and really, it's in the in the time. I, I don't think many of the debaters that I see week in and week out, they're not thinking of where they'll be twenty, thirty years down the road. But it's kind of amazing to look back and see how influential this activity becomes.
1: Yeah, debate kind of does that to you too. It's like you jump into the process, and before you know it, you've gone through all these different topics, and you've read you know some different articles and learned some different things, and then you kind of just learn a little bit more about the world every day. That's
0: how I like to think of it. Well, Dr. Aldi, tell us a little, before we get into the details, um, do, do walk us through a little bit of your career. Cause I was, I was looking through your CV and it seems like you have had a prolific writing uh, aspect of your career. And of course you're currently at Harvard. I, I don't, I'm not sure if you've been at other schools or if you've been at Harvard for, for the whole of your career, but just walk us through some of your story.
2: Right. So I, I first became interested in energy and climate change policy when I worked as a staffer to the Council of Economic Advisors. And this is the, the group of economists who work in the White House advising the president on an array of issues. And I started working there in the lead up to the 1997 UN Climate Change Conference. And that's what really drew me to the intersection of environmental and energy issues. I mean, climate change is a really uh, incredibly difficult policy question. It's also an incredibly rich research area, and it's this opportunity to draw from a variety of disciplines to tackle the tough question, and it's something that motivated my uh, research when I then continued on to get my PhD in economics. And then after that, I, I've had our opportunities to work in a think tank, uh, Resources for the Future, which is a uh, uh, quite a prominent and, and, and long-lived uh, uh, think tank that's nonpartisan, research-oriented, been around for more than 60 years in Washington, focused on energy and environmental and uh, resource questions. I then went to go back into government and worked the first two years in the Obama administration in the White House, coordinating energy and environmental policy, the National Economic Council, and policy development for the climate change office, the Office of Energy and Climate Change. And then after that, I've spent the last eight years uh, up here at the Kennedy School uh, where I continue to um, research on energy and environmental questions. Uh, I also coordinate our efforts on regulatory policy and uh, also enjoy teaching uh, our master's and doctoral students who are focused on, uh, on these kinds of energy and environmental policy questions.
0: Fantastic. So your career has really straddled both the, the research and the study side, but also the very practical issues of how do we effectively use the tools of policy to make a better world than what we currently are looking at?
2: That's right. It's it's something that I think has has long drawn me to think about how we bring the best analysis, the best evidence to uh, inform the development of of more effective uh, public policy.
0: That is that is fascinating, and I, I, think, I, I really appreciate you being willing to come on the show because I think your expertise will be very helpful to uh, high school students because, of course, uh, we're considering the November-December LD resolution tonight. That resolution reads, The United States ought to eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels. And I'll confess, it's not a subject I know very much about, so I'm very much looking forward to learning a lot about this in our conversation tonight. So Great. could you help us with kind of a primer on... Where, where is the United States today in terms of subsidies on fossil fuels? Is this a highly subsidized field? Uh, is there some better way to describe it? How, what, what should we know about subsidies on fossil fuels today?
2: So the, the challenge when thinking about fossil fuel subsidies starts with the definition. What is a fossil fuel subsidy? So, so let me give two definitions for you. One is that a fossil fuel project bringing a barrel of oil to the surface or a cubic foot of natural gas or bringing a ton of coal to the surface all the different kinds of extraction activities, those projects tend to pay less. Uh, uh, have to pay less because they get a, effectively a subsidy through the tax code. Those kinds of projects, an investor can get a higher return simply because they pay less taxes on those projects, especially on the capital investment of those projects. And say if you built a a uh, car manufacturing plant, or if you decided to go out and build an Apple store to sell a bunch of Apple products. So so that the challenge there is, is when you think about it is that if some of my investment gets a lower tax rate than others, we think of that as being subsidized. And in the United States, that's probably on the order of about four to five billion dollars a year. The other way to think about subsidies though is that there are these uh so-called external costs from burning fossil fuels. Uh, what we mean by that is there's all this pollution that comes with the burning of fossil fuels that's not accounted for in the price of a gallon of gasoline or electricity from a coal fired power plant and those external costs. The pollution that causes uh, elderly people to die prematurely, that cause young you know, kids with asthma to have to go to the hospital, uh, or that contributes to climate change that's probably valued in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So, so the question is when we say fossil fuel subsidies in the United States, there's one measure which is just we're subsidizing investment in fossil fuels. They pay lower taxes than other kinds of investment projects, maybe four or five billion. But we may be looking at several hundred billion when we think about the fact that we're not pricing in the fact that burning coal causes people to die prematurely and contributes significantly to climate change.
0: So the subsidies then have the, there's a lot of room for play in a sense on the definition of subsidies in this yeah. in this debate.
2: And, and in fact, I'll, I'll, uh, to tell a quick story from my time in in the White House in uh, the fall of 2009 at the G20 uh, summit, uh, the United States spearheaded an effort to get the G20 countries, the largest developed and developing economies in the world, to agree to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. And we spent then the better part of the next year trying to reach an agreement on what is a fossil fuel subsidy. And after a year of a lot of staff-level conversations among the G20 members, we agreed to disagree. Uh, So at the end, end we decided each country would come up with its own definition of fossil fuel subsidies. Now, one thing that was important, we also tasked major international organizations, the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, um, uh, the OECD, and OPEC, to do their own independent assessment. So we did have a group of energy and economic experts doing an independent assessment of subsidies, but we among the different countries could not agree on a definition of fossil fuel subsidies.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to ask a more clarifying question because I still don't know that I have a, a very clear picture in my mind of that second kind of subsidy. So if if a... I, I help me understand how exactly am I be is a country is a company being subsidized. It sounds almost as if there that second sense is considering that since they the, a, comp, a company emits pollution through the production of their product and they don't have to pay a penalty because they are producing pollution. And that not paying a penalty is being counted as a subsidy. Is that, is that correct or am I misunderstanding it? So,
2: so, so let's think about this, that when uh, a factory is, is manufacturing, something. say we're manufacturing some steel. And at that factory, there's a lot of just conventional solid waste. It's, it's the paperwork that goes into the waste bin that eventually goes into the dumpster in the back. And that company typically has to pay for a, uh, a trash collection truck to pick up their trash and take it to a landfill. So they're paying these fees to have that waste taken away. It's not a productive part of their you know, effort to make steel, but it's some of the waste. But if it's not solid waste that's going to a landfill that they have to pay for, but pollution that's going out of a smokestack, that is now a, a waste that is imposing costs on other parts of society. And when we typically, as economists, think about this, we want to think about what's the opportunity cost of, what, uh, of our actions. Uh, of the manufacturing process. And for most of the opportunity costs, the, manu- the steel mill is paying for them. So the workers who go into producing the steel, we have to pay for that. You have to pay a wage and a salary for those workers. For the, the iron ore coming in, you have to pay for that resource. So these kinds of costs are, are explicitly part of the bottom line. But because they can put the pollution out at the smokestack and it goes downwind and it's harming someone else, they don't have to bear those costs that they're imposing on society like they have to bear the cost, say of employing labor or buying resources or say building a new uh, boiler or what have you in the in the facility so it's it's the fact that there there are these costs to society that they cause that aren't being uh, calculated as part of their bottom line, and as a result, we know they're producing too much pollution
0: okay and if okay so in what in a practical policy sense. Is there a way to reduce that kind of pollution, or to have those companies that produce that pollution to pay the people who are harmed by the pollution? Is there a What, what is, there a, is there a solvency issue there? I guess what I'm asking.
2: So, so your question gets to sort of the two key ways we think about addressing this kind of pollution problem. The second, can we like negotiate among those who are hurt and those who cause the problem? Go, goes back to the work that earned him a Nobel Prize in Economics by Ronald Coase. So the kind of Coasean bargaining that people talk about, which is, I I just need to have well-defined property rights, and whoever, whether their rights are held by the firm with the right to pollute, or the right of those downwind to breathe clean air, they'll negotiate the socially optimal outcome, meaning we'll we'll increase the size of the economic pie uh, by whatever uh, agreement they reach. Having said that, when we think about pollution, like air pollution, or especially climate change, you know, for, for sources of CO2 in the United States, there are hundreds of millions of sources. You really couldn't negotiate a deal on that. So instead, what you might think about doing is, say, a carbon tax. You might say, I'm going to uh, impose a or a cap-and-trade program on, say, the sulfur dioxide pollution, which is something we've done in the United States for coal-fired power plants. It's just not as stringent as the economic evidence suggests it should be, given how awful the public health outcomes are from breathing air that's polluted from the combustion of coal. So, so there are ways in which we can create incentives for those burns to, to account for those prices, account for those costs. In which case, if we did that, if we priced, say, the burning of fossil fuels to reflect the cost that they caused to climate change, we'd be effectively eliminating the subsidy. And in fact, this is some work where the International Monetary Fund has put out a lot of reports in recent years. They have a very easy to use database on this to show what those subsidies look like on fossil fuel combustion across different countries and what you should be effectively taxing that pollution at in order to eliminate the subsidy.
0: That's interesting. interesting. That's very interesting. Is there
1: a way to, um, to calculate the cost to society almost, or is there a way that policymakers go about calculating the societal costs so that you know what to set the carbon tax at, or the cap and trade program or so you know how to um, act upon that?
2: So, So there's a a mix of drawing in the sort of atmospheric science and the epidemiology and the economics. And the the key thing is once we've had the scientists do their part, we can calculate, say, how many people died prematurely from coal combustion at power plants. And then economists use a term referred to as the value of statistical life. What that really is, is is saying how much are people willing to pay for a small reduction of mortality risk. And economists typically estimate that by looking at, say, labor markets and look at how much people are being paid for the fact that they may be injured or killed on the job. Uh, they, there's also been work to look at automobiles, where we see that there's a premium paid for a safer automobile. So from that, we can we can elicit how much people value a reduction of mortality risk and then transfer that into the context of reducing air pollution and seeing that that... We were to reduce air pollution say by taxing it or by using a cap and trade program that would limit the total emissions of the pollutant we'd be able to calculate how much people are willing to pay for that reduction in their exposure to something that may cause them to die prematurely okay uh, there's also a lot of, of, of fairly complicated models being used right now to try to say what are the damages from climate change going out 50 100 even 200 years and say what's the value in terms of reduced economic output over time because of climate change and bring that into today's terms and say this is the value that we would benefit from if we were going to reduce say a ton of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gas emissions okay
0: are are those kinds of predictive models reliable over the time span of 50 100 or 200 years or those does their efficacy diminish as you expand the the range in time
2: There's certainly a lot of questions uh, when we think about how to characterize the uncertainty over time. Uh, It's going to increase significantly. We don't have a track record to be able to look at these models and say how well does a really good economic integrated assessment uh, energy, environmental, economic uh, computer model work for 100 years. Uh, We didn't have computers 100 years ago, let alone the sort of thinking about uh, uh, how how to program them to to analyze this kind of problem. Uh, But one thing that we're seeing that complements that is a lot of work trying to use statistical methods to look at what happens, say, to temperature shocks today in the United States and around the world, and what effect that has on labor productivity, on uh, premature mortality, and on hospital admissions, on economic output. Some of this work looks at the county level in the United States. Some of this work looks at countries around the world. So we're starting to be able to look at the real world experience as the world has begun to warm due to climate change and seeing how um, temperature shocks and some of the more recent work is looking at various weather, uh, extreme weather events like hurricanes and saying what kind of impact does that have on economic activity as a way to
1: calibrate these long term models. Would you say that there's a strong causal connection between the data that's been collected over time and the things like the hurricanes and the different um changes in the climate that we've seen today, or temperature shocks like you were talking about?
2: So I think there's clearly strong causal evidence that uh, warmer than uh, normal temperatures in economies around the world have an adverse impact on economic output. Uh, There's recent work here in the United States showing it has an adverse impact on labor productivity. Some of this isn't a surprise. There there are studies going back 50, 60 years in the uh, US military where they're trying to understand how does the body perform when it is exposed to more and more stress, including temperature stress. So there are these lab physiological studies that show that various kinds of of tasks that you would ask of someone, their performance deteriorates when they're exposed to really warm temperatures. Uh, We're seeing that, though, with real-world evidence looking in labor markets, and labor market performance and productivity, when people in various parts of the country are exposed to extreme temperature. I should note that it's also important we do see some adaptation. A 90-degree a day, I I can assure you from this literature, has a bigger impact on the productivity of Boston than a 90-degree day in North Carolina. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and, 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 and part of that's just because we're not accustomed to those kinds of, of hot summer temperatures as you are in North Carolina.
0: Huh. Uh, that's really fascinating. It's reminding me of a... Uh, uh, an, an older theory in history from uh, the 19th century, where there was a, a theory looking at productivity in Northern Europe versus the the stereotypical Northern Europeans would characterize Southern Europeans as lazy, and and they would justify this this difference where you have a stronger work ethic in the North and a lesser work ethic in the South, and they would explain it based on the geography and the climate. So that's that's really interesting. Well, uh, Doctor Aldi, let me let me shift the question just a little bit. So whether we're talking about the, you said, 4 to $5 billion uh, subsidy or whether we're talking about a more hidden cost of hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidy that we're seeing the cost in healthcare and, and other places, why do we subsidize the fossil fuel industry? Like where, where did, how did this arise to the point that we have, regardless of which definition, billions of dollars of subsidy go into the fossil fuel industry?
2: So it's fascinating. The first – subsidy in the tax code to address fossil fuels uh, was designed the year the constitutional amendment to create the income tax passed and became part of the U.S. Constitution. So so it's been in there from the very beginning, uh, there have been, there've been some evolution over time. Some of the subsidies are more generous for smaller oil and gas companies than the big major or super major uh, oil and gas companies. Uh, one of the arguments, if you go back a long time ago, is that drilling for oil and gas is uh, a very uncertain business. It wasn't that uh, surprising if someone spent a considerable amount of time drilling where they thought there was oil or gas and went up with a dry hole. And so this was a way, recognizing that we as a society benefit from the development of the energy, a way for the taxpayer to sort of subsidize or, or share the risk, if you will, with the oil and gas company. Having said that, the methods they use it are quite sophisticated. It is quite rare now to drill a dry hole. Uh, if anything, that may be a sign that you should find another job if that's what you're doing, because there's a lot of competitors in your industry who don't do that. Uh, but it's one of these things that's not uncommon when we look at the tax code, which is once there are um, a, a select group of firms or key stakeholders who get a benefit in the tax code, they will fight very hard to retain that benefit over time. And so they have had a number of challenges. Uh, You can go back, uh, there was a time in 2007 when we had a major debate over energy policy in the U.S. Congress. There was a chance they were going to lose their subsidies. And they fought incredibly hard to make sure that they kept their subsidies. So I think this is one of these things where once you've created the benefit for a special interest, they have a strong incentive to continue to lobby to sustain that. Uh, But but it's difficult to really make, I think, a credible um, public interest case for it now we have incredible innovation and in technology uh, for these subsidies. Um, and, and, and most of these subsidies, I should know, they don't discriminate in a way that may make some sense. And so let me give you uh, a, an example of a subsidy for fossil fuels that may have made sense uh, from the late 80s, early 1990s. And that was a production tax credit for unconventional natural gas. What this did is it helped subsidize some of the innovative technology and techniques or natural gas production that's led to the fracking boom now in the United States. So the significant increase in U.S. oil and gas production over the past decade was in part enabled by the fact that the initial entrepreneurs using this technology uh, were able to get effectively subsidized through the tax code. I should also note that there's, there's one really notable, uh, if you will, fossil fuel consumption subsidy in the United States, and that's the subsidy for low-income home energy assistance. So the federal government implements this program that is run through the states that enables uh, someone who has income below a certain threshold to get a subsidy so they can heat their home. And since a lot of people are heating their homes either with natural gas or heating oil or electricity that may be produced by fossil fuels, we might think about that as uh, implicitly a fossil fuel subsidy as well. And that, depending on how cold the winters are, may be on the order of several billion dollars a year as well. So but that we might do as a way it's, – it's part of our, our our safety net. Just as we provide assistance to low-income households for uh, food, or housing, we can also do this to make sure that their heat doesn't get cut off in the winter.
0: So some of this then is a social welfare concern. and But there's also part of this that is sort of an inertia and maybe even brings in sort of a, a – a, Uh, a lobbying element to this, where companies that have these benefits really are willing to invest resources to keep those benefits?
2: Uh, Given uh, how little money you need to spend in politics to actually be effective, uh, there's been some economic research that's kind of puzzled by how little money is spent in politics given the large stakes uh, in a lot of the policy decisions, but of course, some of that is a function of our rules on campaign finance. Uh, but there there is there is a view that uh, that's a that's a good investment in your lobbying arm or through your trade association to retain uh, these benefits of the tax code year after year
0: fascinating well what dr aldi what would you see the really the uh, the impact of the affirmative position on this resolution as i mean if if we did get rid of all subsidies for fossil fuels how would that impact existing companies or development of technologies or investment in these fields and so on? What would, they, what would the result be?
2: So one thing that you would see uh, is uh, likely in the United States that a number of the oil and gas companies uh, collect less from the taxpayer. Some coal companies collect less from the taxpayer. It may have a small impact uh, on the amount of oil and gas and coal they produce. There are some empirical estimates out there, but they suggest that these are relatively modest impacts. Now, if you were to talk to the industry, they might suggest that they would significantly reduce their output. And that's an important empirical question, because if if they only reduce, say, oil production by a few percentage points, it's probably not going to affect the price of gasoline. It's not going to affect how much we pay to heat our homes. If it's like a 20 or 30% reduction, however, that might start to have an impact. So... So that does raise this question about whether as we get rid of these subsidies uh, do we find ourselves in a situation where we start to raise energy prices. Now raising the energy prices has some good and some bad impacts. Uh, The positive is that you're now sort of on a level playing field with other technologies and you're going to create an incentive now for investing in more lower carbon, more environmentally friendly uh, sources of energy. It may free up resources that you could spend on research and development or you might say cut taxes. There's a number of things you could do because you're not spending this money to subsidize oil and gas companies. Potential downside is to the extent it reduces production and may lift prices is that it harms low-income households. Low-income households spend a larger share of their budgets on uh, energy than higher-income households. So to the extent that we have a higher price of energy without any way of trying to compensate low-income households, they may be made worse off by such a policy. But also, I, I think this has some positive environmental impacts, but these are going to be correlated to what kind of effect you think this has on production. So if you think that it's going to have a really small impact on production, that a lot of these subsidies are in effect kind of giveaway to corporations, then you're not really getting much environmental benefit. If you think you're going to be getting a, a sizable reduction in an output, that these subsidies really are make or break for a lot of these production decisions, then you're likely to get more sizable environmental benefits.
0: Which seems like it indicates the kind of warrant that debaters ought to be looking for. If they want to be able to make those kind of impacts, they need strong evidence really suggesting here's what this change is, here's what the effect this change is going to produce on fossil fuel industries. Yes.
2: Yep. And, and I can assure you, uh, there's a number of research papers showing, actually, for the most part, fairly modest impacts. You can find some consulting reports um, whose clients are the oil and gas industry where they show larger impacts. So, so there is some evidence out there. I, I tend to think that the more rigorous analysis shows relatively modest impacts. Uh, but uh, there is a, a, a risk of sounding old because I used to cut, literally cut evidence. You make a photocopy of the magazine article and then cut it and put it on your note card. Uh, you can cut
1: evidence on both sides here,
0: Ethan, do you have anything you want to say about cutting cards? Because you're, you're yeah, grinning.
1: I know um, you told me that you used to do that for your extemp things. You would cut things out of the magazine. Um, I think yeah, I might actually have to try that because cutting cards is new for me, at, at least digitally. So maybe going back to the old-fashioned way of doing it might actually be easier. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. No. Well, uh, Dr. Aldi, let me uh, present you with an argument I've heard that I'm not sure if I find terribly credible, but I've heard it from a couple different debaters on other cases, and I rather suspect it's going to come up here because we're touching on issues of pollution and climate change. And I've I've heard people make uh, sort of a, a racial impact of pollution argument, and the argument tends to go on the uh, the, the premise that first most uh, the majority population, mostly white people, are the ones who are producing pollution through their companies, but it's mostly minority people, African Americans and Hispanics, who live in the areas that are most affected by pollution. So you have sort of a racial disparity of uh, who is producing the pollution versus who is living uh, on the effects of pollution. Uh, would you see that as a legitimate argument? Do you have thoughts on that argument? So,
2: so I'd say two things about the argument. One is I, I think it's better to think about the pollution as a function of our consumption. Sometimes we want to say that this company is causing that pollution, but the company is probably producing something that either as a consumer I buy directly or – they make something that goes into another product that I buy. So, or they are talking about sort of a steel mill. I don't buy anything directly from a steel mill, but that steel may be going into a car that I go to an auto dealership and buy that from. And so my consumption is, is really helping to drive or contribute to the incentive for that, um, that pollution. And so to the extent that we think that there is a rational distribution in our consumption, and I think that there is evidence on both, cer- cer- certainly, differences across uh, income, the income distribution There's a racial component to the income distribution. So we would see some of that where the consumption tends to skew more higher income, more uh, 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 white. The exposure to pollution, there is clear evidence that there is more exposure to local air pollutants from the burning of fossil fuels among minority and low-income households. And there's some, some really good, we're really leveraging a lot of, of the of, of, if you will, sort of the big data out there here in recent years to really understand at a very fine geographic level the, the socio demographic exposure from air pollution. So, the, the local air pollutants that cause premature mortality, hospital admission, asthma attacks, that does skew in, in this kind of adverse uh, way towards low income and minority households. In the context of climate change, I think the important thing is. We're, we're feeling some impacts today. We'll feel more impacts over time. But I think it's higher income households are going to have more resources to adapt to climate change. You know, they're the ones who are going to be able to, to retreat uphill when the seas rise. Uh, they're the ones who are going to be able to invest in uh, the backup generator when uh, uh, when the power's out and the storm. Uh, they're the ones who are going to bear less of the cost to be able to invest in the resilience to climate change more so than low income households. So I think when you look at the climate change dimension it 's also going to skew i 'm not sure how much it will skew by race, but it certainly will skew by income
0: well that that that's pretty helpful because I think that gives us lots of ground to work with on affirmative and to look at here 's what happens if we actually apply the affirmative burden in policy and some effects. Let's shift gears over to the NEG case. Um, So Ethan and I had a discussion on a previous episode about I'm having a lot of trouble seeing solid negative ground on this resolution. I'm – in terms of economics, I don't see a huge case for subsidies generally. Uh, I think they tend to be more of a market interference and and, uh, mix up the signals that the market is often communicating. Uh, And I appreciate how you kind of gave us a rationale for them. But it certainly seems that that rationale no longer really fits the present day. So, do you see any good ground on the negative here? Are there reasons why we should argue for keeping uh, for keeping fossil fuel subsidies around?
2: Uh, I'll agree. I, 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 I was puzzled when you first sent me this resolution. It, 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 it didn't seem quite as balanced as, as what I recall from my youth.
0: Uh, so there, there are the, many debaters who have made memes that would very much agree with you. There's a okay. whole bunch of debate memes about how terrible this resolution have is. Have you been looking meds. at it
1: on the What's the Red Instagram?
0: Just, just a few. I mean, oh you, you follow all those guys, and I, I get sucked in, and I thoroughly enjoy the debate memes. That's funny.
2: So, uh, so the couple things I would say on this are um, one, I think you sort of muddle the debate about what is a subsidy. And, and say that, you know, we really don't know what a subsidy is. And, uh, what we do know is that the oil and gas development, especially in the United States, has been good for the U.S. economy. Um, and so you can sort of make, I think that kind of consequentialist argument on, on, on economic grounds. I, I think you could make an argument, which is if, if, if your motivation for doing this is climate change, we're only going to be successful in tackling climate change if we're doing it in a global manner. That we know that it doesn't matter where you emit a ton of carbon dioxide, whether it's in Boston or Beijing, it has the same impact on the global climate. And the fact that we had a decade ago the leaders of the largest 20 developed and developing countries say, yes, we're all going to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies, means that right now we shouldn't do it unilateral. We ought to be coordinating this. We ought to get every country to move forward and do this. That way we don't put our domestic firms at a competitive disadvantage versus other uh, countries' firms. And we're able to ensure that other countries don't free ride off of our actions. And so it really shouldn't be the U.S. should get rid of these subsidies. This would be a fascinating argument to make. It'd be like, no, everybody should get rid of their subsidies. Interesting. Call that, call that a negative argument, um, even though it sounds like an expansion of the affirmative argument. Yeah. Um, but that that's kind of, how I think, how I would try to tackle this, um, because as I know, and, and I agree with you, I, I don't see a lot of obvious negative space here.
1: Do you think that maybe um even if the negative makes the counter argument or the argument that as as a global community we need to reduce or get rid of fossil fuel subsidies as a whole, could the affirmative come back and say, even if that's true, we can still derive local benefits from reducing these fossil fuel subsidies, like you were saying with the local air pollution? Does all that stuff say um concentrated enough to where we could impact our local communities by eliminating subsidies?
2: Oh yeah. So so the the several hundred billion dollar estimate um, that I, I mentioned earlier, the majority of that is the local public health benefits.
1: Mm. Okay,
2: So you can certainly make the argument that that it, it makes sense just improving the health of of, of Americans, of freeing up tax dollars we can use for something else. Says we should go ahead and do this. So, so, so there's no doubt you could sort of make that counter that it's in our interest. Um, I think that you might also make an argument of uh, United States was the one who pushed for this in 2009, and it's hard for us to pressure other countries to do this until we can demonstrate some leadership as a first mover and, and show how it can be done. So I, I think I think that's another way in which you can sort of counter this. Everybody's got to go forward and do this simultaneously.
1: Okay.
0: Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I suspect when debaters actually get into this, because that'll be uh, about a week and a half from now, they'll start with this resolution. I suspect we're going to see a lot of uh, policy-type moves coming into LD, where uh, I saw one coach asking on Facebook about, hey, what about a counter plan for this? Uh, Those sorts of moves are going to be all over this resolution. Well, tell me what you think of this idea. Is is there room on Neg here to suggest that what we actually need to do is, by eliminating – uh, for for NEG, instead of eliminating subsidies for fossil fuels, we need to redirect those to increasing research in alternative energies, or developing a stronger nuclear power program, or something of that nature. Could that be an option for for NEG? And is there is there material on that side?
2: So so there, there is a, there's a strong case to be made that because. Some of the novel energy technologies would deliver environmental or climate change benefits, uh, that we, we need to undertake that R&D to, to, to make them more likely to be commercialized, to have them on the shelf so that we can start to deploy them, uh, throughout the economy. Um, you know, there, there is one recent, um, what do think, about two years ago, a new tax credit, uh, put into the tax code that would subsidize carbon capture and storage technology from a fossil fuel plant. So this is the idea that you would burn coal or burn natural gas, and instead of the CO2 going out through the smokestack, you capture it, and you, then you stick it underground. And That way, you can have a fossil fuel that generates electricity or generates heat for an industrial process that doesn't contribute to climate change. And depending on how you're capturing it, you might also capture some of the other stuff that's really bad uh, for public health. So it could be that you say, hey, there are some fossil fuel subsidies that if they are targeting what you say is the environmental bad, let's do that. And So you don't want to get rid of all fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, there are some, you know, the thing is carbon capture storage technology is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's still at a sort of test uh, stage. There have been a few efforts at commercial projects. Uh, what we've learned is that the technology is really, really expensive. Um, and, uh, so there, there, there's probably a need for additional R&D on that front. Um, but you do have this, this tax credit in, the in the tax code that would enable a commercial facility to gain the equivalent of about $50 for each ton of CO2 they put in, uh, underground. Um, that's, you know, if we had a carbon tax in the United States of $50 a ton, that'd be on the order of about 45 cents a gallon of gasoline. So that's like a a pretty sizable, in terms of the value, that's a pretty sizable number. And when we look at proposals in Congress, um, as well as among various advocates to price carbon, they usually start at a lower value than that. So it's a pretty generous subsidy. Um, But maybe that's the kind of example one can give and say, no, wait, we still need to subsidize fossil fuels, but do so in a way that reduces their environmental impact.
0: I could see that. I could see that. Well, uh, Dr. Aldi, do you have any recommendations for other scholars besides yourself? Because, of course, we'll link to uh, your, your faculty member page and your CV on the show description. But are there any, any other names in the field that listeners could go research and read up on on their policy proposals and so on?
2: So um, the first one who comes to mind is my colleague at Tufts University just down the road here, uh, Gib Metcalf, Gilbert Metcalf. Uh, who's written about the tax code um, on energy for a long time and has written some of the, uh, I think, really high-quality research on the empirical impacts of subsidizing uh, fossil fuels in the U.S. economy. Uh, I would say another really good resource for this is, within the U.S. government, at uh, the Energy Information Administration. EIA is the statistics office within the Department of Energy, and every three or four years they produce a report cataloging all the energy subsidies in the US. So they look at fossil fuels, but they also look at nuclear, they look at renewables, but it's a, it's a really nice, clean uh, report that's a snapshot every three or four years. Uh, I would also say that um, at the think tank where I used to work, where I'm still affi- affiliated as a university fellow, Resources for the Future, they produce a number of reports as well um, looking at uh, fossil fuel subsidies. And finally, I would say the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has a really good fossil fuel subsidy website. Uh, They have a number of reports there. Uh, They have all their data in a spreadsheet that you can play around with so that you can see the data broken down for the United States and see how the United States compares to other countries, that kind of work. And, And their work in particular is the one that's really distinguishing how much are we spending to subsidize through the tax code versus how much are the air pollution and climate change damages that are effectively being subsidized by the fact that they're not being priced in our
0: fossil fuels. Your explanation of the the difference there was really helpful. because I, When I first started digging into this, I ran into an Atlantic article that was really looking at it, and I, they did not explain it as clearly as you did, but looking at the discrepancy between the IMF number was something around $500 billion versus the actual number produced by the Congressional Budget Office or, or some governmental um office giving a specific number was something like four to three to four billion dollars. And but your explanation of kind of the value there is was very helpful. Um Ethan, do you have any last questions or I was gonna kind of shift gears to our last segment unless you had any other thoughts there.
1: So I'm just gonna ask a clarification question really quick. So in connecting these different numbers, so, um we were we were reading a paper. I think it was the IMF one from before. Was it valued at like 5.2 trillion or something? Was the overall fossil fuel for like the globe?
2: That that sounds about right for for the, the, the planet. And that that's that's going to cover the direct subsidies. That's going to cover all the air pollution. Uh, they also have a little bit of a fiscal uh, measure there in terms of if you're if you're having to spend money for this stuff, you're actually having to raise money somewhere else, and that imposes a cost. Uh, the, the cost of raising revenues, the welfare costs, the distortions from Taxing labor or taxing capital, so all in—that's that's on the order of five trillion. And, and the biggest category there is the air pollution, the local air pollution benefits.
1: Okay, so if if I walk into a debate round and someone says five billion, and then someone else says five hundred billion in the United States, I can be sure that one of them is talking about the direct subsidy, and the other one is—and the other person is talking about both the direct and the um, societal cost and the air pollution in that's their right. argument. Okay, it right. makes sense. <laughs>
0: Well, Dr. Aldi, I'd love to close this episode out asking uh, your advice in a couple different areas, primarily or towards uh, students. Uh, Our our audience for this show is mostly middle school and high school students. So, uh, first off, in terms of debate, uh, what advice would you offer to novice debaters? I have a team of about uh, 25 students this year and about 18 of those are brand new to this particular game. What advice would you offer them?
2: So, I, uh, I recall always being, when I was starting off, quite nervous and especially nervous that I would forget to say something and, and really dwelling on what I forgot to say as opposed to thinking about the 10 or 15 things I did say. And, uh, and I would just want to emphasize that when you're starting out debating, you're, you're not going to get it all right. It's not going to be all perfect. This is part of the learning process. And, and, and to recognize that you're, you're experimenting with your ability to process information in a very short amount of time and then, uh, take what you've processed and distilled and communicating that in a very short amount of time. And, and that's something which, uh, I would, I would emphasize that you focus on what did I do that was interesting? What did I do that actually was a, was a, a clever way to advance the argument and not dwell on the thing, um, Although I do recall one year at summer debate camp, uh, doing cross-ex debate, I, I, I dropped an argument. Um, and of course, this was this is the year in which everybody had about five or six nuclear wars. In uh, in policy cross-ex debate, it was one of those topics where it was amazing how many different things always led to nuclear war, and I dropped the nuclear war. So uh, <laughs> we're the affirmative. We, we lost. Like I was the first added rebuttal, and I dropped. It. And so I do. Well, I gave you that advice. I realized that it, it's it's decades later, and I still remember that. Uh, <laughs> but but, but, but what I just despite what I just said about that. I, I, you know, this is this is not easy standing in front of people and making a persuasive argument. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it is a skill that will do you incredible benefit as you go forward in school. When you think about being on the job, when you think about just having an argument with your friends over who should be the starting five for the Boston Celtics. Like being able to make an, uh, an evidence-based persuasive argument is something you'll, you you be able to use for a long time and and, and, and take joy in the fact that you're learning how to do this and, and, and not dwell on the mistake here or the mistake there.
0: That's, that's great advice. I know one of the things that uh, I, I tell my students pretty frequently is that uh, the perfect is very often the enemy of the good. and, yeah. Even, no round is perfect. We're going to focus on what went well in that round, not, not what went wrong. Well, the second area I'd feel remiss if I didn't ask you about, since you're a, a, a working professor at, at Harvard University. What advice would you offer to high school students as they look at the college landscape today?
2: So I I think especially when when thinking about college is think about what's the right fit – for you, and that is there are a lot of different. Uh, I, I see among students a lot of different personalities. I see a lot of different skill sets, and I see that there's different kinds of, of courses, different kinds of curricula that are better suited for some personality types and some skill sets than others. And and I think it's important that you find a place. I mean, it's for for most students going out to college is the first time they're away from family, they're away from all their friends they grew up with, you're building a lot of, of new relationships with new friends and that's great, um, but you want to be in an environment where you're comfortable, where you realize that you have an opportunity to learn about yourself, to be able to learn in your classes, to learn from your new friends, um, but it's also important to recognize then when you do that to know that what is the top 10 list for you, maybe a different top 10 list for your friends or maybe a different top 10 list than, than your parents. And, and I, I say that as, as, as a father of two boys who are far from going up to college, but recognizing they're different than me. I, I, I can already see that in my three-year-old, um, especially because he's a pretty good debater with me. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, we did. Sometimes I disagree. So, so I, I think it's... it's it's important. There's, 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 I think, incredibly rich opportunities out a lot of different, uh, universities. And one of the great libraries I have as a professor is I, I get to go and travel, um, and give seminars and visit people at other campuses and learn about their programs. Last week, I was at Arizona State to give a seminar and then I was at Case Western Reserve uh, to give a talk. And so it's, um, there, there's really a lot that I think that, that varies across the, uh, higher education in the United States. And I think that's one of the, fantastic characteristics of, our, of, of college in America and find what's a good fit for you and what's sort of the right, uh, the right environment for you to learn both the material and your courses but to learn more about yourself. Um, because a lot of what is life, it's certainly true when you go into graduate school, uh, you're learning how to learn. Hmm. And it's one of the things that I, I teach my doctoral students is that you're going to take courses for two years. And then after that, the rest of your career, you're going to be teaching yourself. We're going to be giving you enough tools so that you can teach yourself. And I think, you know, in a different sense, um, that's a lot about what college is. You're learning to be able to be an effective learner over the course of the rest of your life.
0: That's the, uh, that's the line that was on top of the Delphic Oracle, if I remember right. Uh, uh, thee, Salton, know thyself. Uh, that, that's great advice. Uh, Dr. Aldi, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the show. Uh, is, uh, I know I, I found a lot of your information on your Harvard faculty page. If, if uh, our audience wants to kind of follow your work, is that the best place for them to do that? Or do you have a, a different web presence you'd send them to? Uh,
2: th- that would be great. Uh, uh, I think it's scholar.harvard.edu backslash Jaldi. All right, we'll, we'll be sure I'll, to I'll send you there. the information. We can have it up with the, with the
0: podcast. Perfect. That sounds great. Awesome. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight for this uh, special episode of What's the Res? As Ethan and I uh, discuss, of all things fossil fuels. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Aldi, for coming on the show. Uh, it, it, we're, we're very grateful for your time and lending us your expertise in the area. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you want to let us know what you think of this episode or leave any feedback for us, you can do that. Uh, we're on all the major podcasting platforms. We'd love a five star review over on Apple Podcast. You could also get in touch with us over our different social media channels. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash what's the res. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Reddit with the handle at what's the res underscore. And uh, then Ethan, which one am I forgetting?
1: Um, The email, What's the gmail.com.
0: And also our Instagram. Yep. No, I said our Instagram. Yeah, you said Instagram.
1: You said Instagram. No, I good. said
0: something. There's something I'm forgetting. Oh, well. Well, we'll leave it there. Our
1: website. You're forgetting our website.
0: Oh, our website. website. <laughs> yes. Oh, www.whatstherez.com. com. And of course, as always, we've got our premium debates. If you can't get enough debate in your life, then check out whatstherez.podbean.com slash premium. If that's too much to remember, go to our website. Ethan put up a big banner right there. You just click the banner and it takes you right to the spot where we publish each month one recorded debate between uh, real people. We call them real debates by real people because none of the people who are on on those shows are recognized experts in their fields. Instead, they're folks who do exactly what Dr. Aldi just recommended. They have continued to learn how to learn, and they learn about new topics, and we debate them. So we have all kinds of fun. Uh, In October, our episode is focusing on the universal basic income, whether we should have one of those or not. Uh, In November, I'm very excited that we're going to be releasing an episode uh, in, uh, arguing about racial reparations. I'll be arguing in favor of racial reparations. My opponent will be arguing on the neg. So uh, feel free to check it out. Ethan, close us out. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.